Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Dr. Shanti Waters to the podcast to discuss the characteristics of a quality ABA therapy program and the important role the prescription plays in treatment. Shanti is a doctoral level board certified behavior analyst who has worked with children and adults with ASD and other disabilities for over 27 years. She currently serves as the VP of Quality Assurance at ABS Kids. Thanks for joining the podcast, Shanti. Thank you, Jeff. I'm excited to be here today. So you have uh, some unique perspective on this before we get into into the subject. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and your expertise as it comes to early intervention and looking at uh, the appropriate prescription or intensity of care. So, you know, I have experience working um, for many years in early intensive behavioral treatment. Um, I was part of a research and clinical replication site of Dr. Ivar Lobos. And so early on in my career, you know, I was focused on providing very intensive treatment for children with autism and being involved in a project that looked at the effects of intensity um, on treatment outcome and found, you know, that those kids who had those intensive prescriptions that met their individual needs early on for a few years did remarkably better than those children who received your traditional, you know, school services. You know, we saw incredible gains in, you know, their language ability, their, their independent functioning, their IQ, and many of the kids actually went on to be in school independently after having a few years of ABA. Yeah, and so what you're talking about, it, it really is something that it requires a commitment. It requires a lot of time, I'd imagine. Most people who are going in for medical treatment are expecting a procedure that's going to work in a moment, and it's going to go so fast. But this isn't the case with ABA. So how do you go about describing ABA therapy to families and and at times even physicians who aren't yet aware of how ABA works? This is a great question. Um, I think there's quite a few things I would want to tell them to help them better understand what ABA is. Um, First off, I think ABA is the most exciting and engaging way we can maximize learning in a fun and individualized way. Um, We know that ABA, at least for young children with autism, um, that it's the most widely used and most effective treatment for these children. Um, You know, unlike a child who's going into, say, a classroom setting with one teacher and maybe several aides, um, where you, you have lessons that are designed, you know, for the group with some individualization, in ABA, the learning is 100% customized to the child. You have their treatment team, their clinicians honing in on on those specific areas where the child needs the most support, and we tailor the child's environment to help them learn their best. Also, you know, ABA is flexible. There are times when a child might need more structure, that one-to-one learning to help them focus and learn, you know, very specific skills, such as, for example, learning to produce initial sounds and make words and so forth. 
um, or attending to an activity at the table. But there are a lot of instances where we are using more naturalistic teaching in the real world, in, their, in the child's own world, in their home, in their community, to help them learn how to you know, engage in those environments. Um, and even at times, we may be adapting ABA um, to help support a child in the school, how to function more independently there, focusing on medically necessary skills. Also, ABA is fun, um, and it's a way that we can help build social reciprocity, that back and forth between people. And, and that's tough to get when you're in a classroom setting, when you have a teacher focused on you know, 10, 20, 30 kids. Um, in ABA, you have that person who is, you know, focused on engaging with them. And, you know, we're using what we call positive reinforcement. So fun things um, happening after they're practicing skills. And what it does is help increase their, the things that they're working on. Um, we can also use positive reinforcement to help reduce challenging behaviors, um, help them build independence. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like, I mean, everything that you're describing is, is taking treatment and immersing it into the child's life, which I, I think makes it easier for a family to envision what this intensity might look like. It, it's, it's not that you're sitting in a very small room for 35, 40 hours a week and, and doing drills. What you're doing is you're finding ways to make all these things useful functional, fun. And, I mean, it, that's the first part of functional. Um, it's, it's what you're trying to do is it make it so that the child doesn't even realize they're in treatment. And so when you were talking about intensity, and I'll, I guess I'll tie this back to your, to your research because it's so important to understand why it's important to get these hours. Why, what is it about the intensity of service or about needing the right prescription that makes ABA work? And if you don't meet the right prescription, is it not going to be effective? Um, yes. So, you know, the treatment intensity is tied to, you know, long-term outcome. And so um, with intensity, it's not just, you know, hours that you're giving a child. It's what you're doing with those hours, too. I think they both work hand in hand. Um, when we have a child that comes to us who shows significant delays across, you know, different areas of development, so their language skills, play skills, self-help skills, etc. Um, we are tailoring our prescription, um, which is how many hours a week they're being recommended, and their goals to help maximize those learning opportunities for them. So in every treatment hour, we're looking at, you know, providing intensive number of opportunities to practice their skills. And, you know, in, when you have fewer hours, you have fewer opportunities. And one of our goals with that early intensive treatment is to try and catch them up. We're trying to get them on that upward trajectory where not only are they learning, but they're closing that developmental gap. And so treatment intensity and how intensive your sessions are is really going to help determine what chances they have at closing that gap. Yeah, and it, it seems so important at a young age to be able to develop a lot of those skills so that ultimately you don't need treatment. Ultimately is that you have a chance for the child to learn independently and explore the world on their own without additional supports, which is what we all look for as parents. Mm -hmm. I, 
Now, when you're when we're looking at this and we're trying to evaluate as a prescription comes in and, and you're making that recommendation, it, I, I kind of equate this back to the, the medical world is that, you know, a doctor is going to give a prescribed amount of uh, medication or a physical therapist is going to give a prescribed amount of times that they need you to work on things in the home environment in order to recuperate after a surgery or something like that. So do you have, do you have any stories, I mean, of, of children that maybe weren't getting the appropriate level of care and then you were able to kind of coach and give the education back and, and you saw gains. Does that happen on a regular basis? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, first of all, the prescription really should be driven based on the patient's individual need. And then, you know, working with the parent to figure out how do we help your child access this within, you know, your family's, you know, week and activities and things like that. Um, what we found is that when the child has less intensive hours than what they actually need, the treatment's not going to be as efficient as effect and effective. You can see that the child might need treatment over time and actually not be making gains with fewer hours or very minimal gains. Um, and so when we've seen that happen, um, you know, we will coach the parents. We will, you know, educate them about what goes into that and how can we incorporate this into their, their lives so they can access it. And what we find is for a child, say, let's say a child's been getting, you know, 15 hours a week, but they really needed 30 because they had deficits in so many areas and problem behavior that were interfering with their ability to learn in the natural environment. And when we've been able to increase those hours, what we find is we are likely to be decreasing them in six months to a year rather than continuing on at that 15 over time. So it becomes more effective. I think it's really important up front when talking with families that they understand, you know, uh, it's not meant to be forever. In fact, I tell my staff, you know, for years I've been telling my staff, like, you know, you've been doing a good job when you work your way out of a job with a child. Um, you're not meant to be there forever. We want to maximize the time we have with them and help them, you know, increase their skills and be independent. But the goal is to be able to fade so that child can, you know, be learning in their own environment with their family, in school, in the community, etc. So I think parents understanding up front that it's not meant to be forever. It could be three years of intensive, really intensive services and then fading. It could be a year of intensive and fade, then fading. And it could be maybe your child only has a few skills that they need to work on and are independent in other areas. And so it's less intensive, but we are going to, a quality program is going to basically pre, uh, prescribe those hours in a manner that meets your child's needs. Not like this is our cookbook approach. Everyone gets this. Mm -hmm. Now it, you were talking about fading of services and really keeping the families engaged in that process, which uh, it would be a, a tough pill to swallow if, if you were told that it was going to be 40 hours a week for eight, 10 years, and this is going to be what's going on, is that you want to have hope that, you know, things are going to keep moving in the right direction. A, a prescription has to be looked at at a regular basis. How often are you reevaluating? And, and when you do that reevaluation, what is it that they clinicians are looking at to understand, can I reduce some of the intensity? Is this child getting to the point where they can use their skills without my support? So a clinician should be looking at, you know, the treatment intensity, prescription, 
um, every six months at minimum. So that prescription, of course, is based on where that child is at that moment in time is functioning. So, um, and it's not just based on, you know, what we find in the standardized assessment or even our skill-based assessment. It, it also involves working with the family to identify when we're not here what's going on. We want to address that too. Um, we want our parents to be involved so we can help that child see that everyone knows what they know and knows how to support them in using those skills. So the child just learns then over time to use them across all waking hours. Um, so there are times in which we might reduce a prescription during a six month period. If a child makes tremendous progress towards their goals early on in a six month period, that might warrant a time to fade hours. So it's not tied to six months, but I would say a minimum of six months is a good time. And at six months, what your um, behavior analyst will be doing is, you know, updating assessments. So standardized assessment checking in um, might be one of the pieces. Definitely progress on goals, um, any uh, direct assessments that they may be doing to look at skills. And when we see that the if the child is functioning at an age-appropriate level in an area, that's maybe less time that we need to be there. And so we're looking at all those different skill, uh, types of skills and, and areas of learning to see where does the child need the most support. Um, and we're also looking at, you know, what does the child need during that time? Is it one-to-one? -one? Do we need to start incorporating peers to help that child learn to interact with, you know, their neighbors or their kids, kids from school that they see, um, their siblings? Um, so there may be times that we're actually creating other opportunities for learning that aren't just one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, and as we're approaching summer, I would imagine that uh, part of that evaluation is how do I move this into the community? How do I give them access to some of the fun activities? The weather is nice. It's outside. Maybe we got more access to parks. Maybe we got more access to outdoor events. Is, uh, is that part of the evaluation process as far as how do, I, how do I move the community into treatment or how do I make sure that I'm making it so that there's no walls, I guess, to treatment? Absolutely. Um, I, I personally think summer is an amazing time for catching up. Um, it's, you know, for many of our children without the, the needed support, they can regress during the summer if they don't have the support that they normally have during the school year. And so this can be a time where we can actually increase hours to help kind of give them that boost before they go back to the school year. Um, I've always liked to look at the summer as a time to look at, you know, what other things is this child not able to access during a typical school year um, that they're not actually prepared for to access independently? And how can we work together with the family, um, with, you know, the community to make that happen. Um, so that could be, you know, maybe your child's into robotics or something, but can't function independently. You couldn't drop them off and have them do the six hour camp. Maybe we can work with that camp. We, you know, oftentimes we'll meet with a director and find an opportunity. Where can the child be most successful? Are they willing to have support there? And meanwhile, we're there not just to follow the child around, but to actually help them work on using the skills they've learned already and even learning new skills in that environment. Mm -hmm. Another thing that um, I think summers are, are wonderful for is prepping that child for the new school year. So 
you know, oftentimes with ABA services, it's difficult to get into school and actually provide the ABA there. There are some restrictions in some places that don't allow for that. Um, and when that's the case, it's still an opportunity for us. And that is, I found a ton of success, you know, back in those uh, research days I was telling you about, we would often work with the family um, who would then work with the school to see, you know, which parents of kids within the classroom would potentially be receptive to you know, doing some peer play. And we would strategically reach out to those parents or have the parent reach out and invite the kids over for an hour or two at a time. And we would structure things in a way to help motivate the peer that's coming over to want to play. Like, this is fun. We get to do things I like to do, but also setting up our child for success with the skills we know that they can engage with, but just need help, you know, bridging that over to the peers. And what we found when we used that strategy is kids would seek out those peers in school because they were familiar, they had a history of reinforcement, meaning, you know, they had engaged with them and had fun. And um, those kids would also seek them out and tend to be that kind of peer buddy, like, come on, let's, you know, Johnny, Susie, whoever, let's, let's go play Foursquare and would include them. And then therefore more kids would want to include that child. So yeah. I think there's, some strategy there, which actually benefits the kid in, you know, the fall and next seasons to come. Now, would I, would I be, would I be correct in presuming that, you know, for most children, you actually need to have more consistency over the summer because they're losing the structure that they would have had during the school year. And without that consistency and, and that following of the prescription, I guess, yes. is that you see some, some major regression. Is it, is, have, have you seen that with children specifically? Absolutely. I mean, I've seen instances of a re regression when, you know, a child takes off for the holiday break for a week or two. Um, and so I think those breaks are really difficult uh, for many of our kids, at least early on. And so it's really important to plan ahead so we can see how can we best maximize this time. Um, yeah, and, and I think that these are things that always we have to be evaluating and hopefully if that clinicians are preparing families prior to the summer to say, hey, you know, this is where the routine might break a little bit. This is where we're missing out on some of the opportunity that the school might have been fulfilling or that daycare might have been fulfilling or community access. And this is how we can restructure our sessions to create more supports and more opportunity and shrink that gap even more between that developmental age um, over, over these breaks, over these summers. Um, I, since, I, since I have you here and you have such wonderful experience, I, I would be remiss not to ask if you have any kind of, you know, funny or insp inspirational stories about you know, how you've been creative to help families to meet their prescription and to feel the no burnout and to feel success and joy in treatment rather than feeling like, you know, it's a burden to have somebody in my house. I was working with a little girl who loved to dress up for staff. And I'm like, mm. I don't even care. You can, you can do whatever you want to me. I'm in session. And, and if you're willing to learn for this, great. And yeah. I remember one time the family had over company for tea or something like that. And, you know, I, I didn't realize you're so in it. You don't even know that people are around you at times. Yeah. If you're doing therapy, it's so fun. And I remember looking at these guests <laughs> and I'm wearing literally a tutu over my jeans and I don't even know what else. And I remember kind of the look like, oh, <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. 
it's, it's definitely a job where you have to own you. Like, and it's ultimately that is that you can't care what others are thinking. No, or it's like if, if you videotape me doing a session is, and showed that to my friends, they would be laughing hysterically. Oh, yes. So. Yes. You know, early on in my career, um, I was actually fortunate to have this model, which was very helpful to me. And that was Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was, you know, coming out in the field um, with these movies like Ace Ventura. And if you look at his face, I mean, it's wild. It's funny to watch even without sound. And so that was a model, you know, during my early days of just goofy and it works. Yeah. Kids love it. And if you look at typically developing kids, you know, in their play, they're goofballs. And so when an adult can actually act that way when they're working and entice a child, I mean, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. They think you're crazy. I like you. I think like the summer offers us is opportunities to learn in, you know, different environments. And so, um, you know, one thing that I found is helpful is looking at, you know, if you have family members, for example, that live nearby that are part of the child's life, but typically during the school year with it being so busy, you can't really access those environments. We've actually integrated doing treatment in those environments. You know, sometimes we're at grandma and grandpa's house and kind of learning their routines an environment the child goes to but doesn't typically have the ability to practice their skills there so that's you know been a really fun way to you know incorporate family help them understand they're they're educated in what we're doing and, and seeing what their grandchild can do i could see that being so valuable for all the family members it's it's that added perspective of you know this is this is who this child is this is their personality this is how i can integrate in their life better so that um, I, can, I can be a part of their community rather than feeling like an outsider. It sounds like a good chance to coach a variety of different definitely, people. Definitely, definitely. And I think also what can happen when you do something like that is it also builds support for the family. When you have the grandparents, the aunt, the uncle, seeing what it is that we do and actually learning, they're also a support to the family. And I, I found that that's been really effective um, way of helping the family understand what the child's needs are. Um, another thing that we've done too in the past, um, of course, with a lot of coordination, um, is looking at, you know, once we've established, say, peer play sessions with kids, you know, maybe neighborhood kids or cousins or, or whoever it may be, um, once we've had success in the child's own home and backyard and things like that, is incorporating sessions occasionally at a peer's house. It's amazing when you take a child to the kid's house, another kid's house where they haven't had, you know, much history and, you know, interesting things can happen. You're like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, so-and-so would do that. <laughs> so it's a great way to kind of support before there comes a time when we're not there anymore and they are having to go into different people's homes and so forth. Um, yeah. And with all those communication skills that a lot of our children are learning, it's that shared experience with another child. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that shared experience is about what's important to that other child as much as it's what's important to uh, the child that we're working with. And it's how do you integrate that? And it sounds like a wonderful opportunity to do because kids are out of school. Kids are out yeah. and about. Use that time for that. Now, it, just as a, as a kind of a chance right now for other behavior technicians and BCBAs out there uh, to learn from your experience. Um, I, there, is, there is one other piece to this. A lot of people don't know how to form that partnership with families to help them to understand 
how important for the, for the prognosis of, of their child's development and that that short-term scheduling challenges of being able to get all those hours in is how do, how do BCBAs go about explaining the value of that to families? Because it is a disruption to their life. I think, you know, helping families know upfront what they're getting into, you know, as I mentioned before, that, you know, this is not intended to be forever. I think that's very important to know upfront. But I think some of it comes from showing them. When I can demonstrate to you that I'm getting a response from your child that you're not seeing others able to do in the same way, and actually that response to treatment, that also forms buy-in. Um, you know, helping them understand upfront, you know, that this is the most effective means. Having the intensive services up front is going to increase the likelihood your child's not going to need these intensive services. If we do this now, there's an investment. And that gives you, say, six months to really get in there and try. And I think one of the most important pieces early on is really trying to work on some of that social reciprocity. And if they can see that their child's responding, you know, this is amazing. And, you know, we didn't talk about so much the, the fun in, in ABA, but there's a lot of fun to be had there and a lot of influences for fun. But, you know, we are doing anything, even standing on your head, if that's what it takes, literally and figuratively to get that response in your child. Um, I have done somersaults and stood on my head in session. I've worn tutus. I've, you know, acted like a goofball. You have to do what's going to get that response from the child. And it's not just them looking at you, but them learning. And when a parent mm -hmm. sees someone going out of the way to act like a kid themselves to get that response, they are like, wow, like this is magic. It's not really magic, but it can look like magic when they see a kid engaging and in, in, in imitating and wanting more. Um, and the kid, you know, holding on to you when you leave, you know, that, yeah. that's, I think, shows a parent, wow, like something's going on here. Um, yeah. They want to be here or they show up at the center and the kid like is running in to go, you know, greet their, their therapist. That I think is motivation. And so helping establish early on that, you know, building that reciprocity is key. I'll just yeah. kind of throw this out there, but one of the things I used to do with my own, you know, staff was I would have them, you know, sit down with the child and say, you are going to engage with this child till you get a social response or what we call a social indicating response. And that is, you could be making faces, sounds, you know, big movements, small movements, running around the room, whatever it is, to get them to respond to you in a social way. And once you do that, okay, next person. But then the purpose being, this is what I want you to get out of them all the time. Mm -hmm. When they're doing things, that um, we need them to do more of, this is what you're going to do. And you're going to vary it. You know, you don't want to do the same thing all the time. But well, I, if, I, if I'm hearing correctly, it sounds like uh, for all those BCBAs out there and all clinicians in general is being transparent with the family, yep. listening, understanding their needs, and most importantly, showing them that you could build that connection with their child are the most important things in order for, for successful treatments. A BCBA's job isn't you know, just to assess and monitor and, and, and teach the team on what to do. It's also to be that person to be the best model. You know, the, the BCBA should be engaging with that child often. So the parent sees that, wow, they know what they're doing. They can do it. And they're training everybody else who comes in the door to do yep. this too. 
That's it's the clinician who uh, who's also having at times to be the rodeo clown. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. Yes. it's a fun life. It's a fun experience if you can nail that down. But I appreciate the time that you spent um, sharing your expertise with us, uh, Shanti. And I, I, I really hope that both families and clinicians alike are able to take pieces of this and understand, you know, intensity does not have to be draining. Intensity could actually create more opportunity and more freedom over the long term if we're matching it appropriately to the prescription and just giving the child what they need and doing it the right way. So thank you so much for joining us today and hopefully we'll get you back on sometime soon. Sounds good, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids, that's plural, dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.